Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we have been challenged this week to be thankful, to be grateful. It's far too easy for us to fall for the enemy's schemes, far too easy for us to become discontent, to express ingratitude. We pray that you would forgive us, that you would give our hearts and minds to recognize your goodness, enable us to see to embrace everything as your goodness for us. We're so blessed. We're together here today because of your great love, your grace. We pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. Make your spirit to fill us, equip us, empower us, that we might honor you in all things. I pray, Lord, for the person who is here today who does not know you, that is struggling with despair. I pray that your Spirit will bring conviction and convince them that the gospel is true, that you would grant the gift of repentance and faith. Show them Christ in a clear and consuming way today. Give them the ability to savor your forgiveness. Give them a desire for your promises. Bless this body of believers. Make us, Lord, imitators of you. May we truly be, Lord, pictures and reflections of your glorious image in this dark world. Everywhere we look, we see pain and suffering and heartache. Make us your witnesses, shining with your mercies and your love. Use us to advance the hope of your great gospel, that we might compel the lost to turn to you. We are blessed, Lord, again this week with new life in our congregation. We're grateful for a new baby in the home of Martin and Kiana, a new baby in the home of Ben and Holly. And we pray for those families, thanking you for safe deliveries. And we ask now for expedient healing and strength and an adjustment. Now, Father, we enable you to pray that you would enable us to put aside all influences and distractions, that you would tune our hearts and minds to your voice and only to your voice, and that you might speak to us and that you might change us today in a way that's pleasing and honorable to you. For we ask it, we pray it in Jesus' name and for His honor. Amen and amen. How many smells are there? Give it some thought. I know it's a weird question, right? This week you've had the occasion to relish, revel in a lot of aromas, many of them pleasing. The slow cooking of turkey or ham. Maybe that's not very appealing, appetizing to you today, if you've been feasting on it all week. Dressing or yams or corn or pies and cookies. There's something about it, right? When you walk into the home and you smell those fragrances. If you mentally flip through the pages of your personal 
smell catalog, you're going to find a great many of them. They're embedded there, along with many others, like burnt toast, or shaving cream, or grandma's kitchen, or pine trees. You can identify a lot of smells and put a number of them. Putting a number on them would be almost impossible. Arthur, author Avery Gilbert explores estimates from various scientists, fragrance manufacturers, and chemists who suggest that humans can detect anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 different smells. You didn't know you were that talented, did you? And there's a scientific reason for it. It all has to do with your DNA. There are about 400 genes coding for the receptors in your noses. And there are about 900,000 variations of those genes. These receptors control the sensors that determine how we smell odors. A given odor will activate an array of receptors in the nose, crediting or creating a specific signal for the brain. The scripture speaks of the uniqueness of fragrances. For example, we're told in scripture that sacrifices make a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. We're also told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we as believers, as Christians, spread the fragrance of Christ to others, some for life, some for condemnation. Our prayers and sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to God. And here in this fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul exhorts us to imitate Christ, who he calls a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, we must understand that our responsibility, our calling, is to be a fragrant offering, a sacrifice unto the Lord. He admonishes us to walk in this manner, to emulate Him. And in this text, there are three keys for being a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Three. First of all, He talks about our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ. Beloved, therefore, be of God, be as beloved children. As beloved children. Identity is a huge topic in our culture today. Everybody has a different idea, concept. I can't tell you in the course of a week how many conversations that I have these days about the subject identity. Mostly, in the past, our identity hinged on external factors. Things like your heritage, your ancestors, the location where you were born, where you were raised, where you live now, education, career, various circumstances that have affected your life or impacted you. But presently, we're being taught, told that these external influences no longer identify us, that your identity is based upon how you feel inside, how you think about yourself, how you imagine yourself to be, want yourself to be. We're told that this is the new morality, in fact. Not truth, not outside objective truth, but the internal you. Being true to who you are 
is morality. And anyone who says that that's not true is guilty of being a vile sinner and repressor. That's the culture we live in today. But those who argue that subjectiveness is where we find truth actually don't understand truth. Truth is not subjective. Truth is objective, and it is authoritative. Our identity is actually more simple than our society wants to believe it is. We're all born into this world with a common identity. Scripture says very clearly that we are sinners. We have a sin identity. Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3. God looks down from heaven on the earth, on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Staking claim to a biblical position in our world and culture today is not going to gain us any popularity. In fact, it's going to draw a lot of hostility and anger. Arrogant humanity rejects absolute truth as revealed in God's Word. In fact, subconsciously, if not blatantly, we approach truth with a built-in resistance to it. Let's, let's try this test. I'm going to read a familiar text of Scripture, and I'm going to insert some commentary. And I want you to think about this. Most people, if they won't admit it, are thinking exactly what I say as the Scripture's read. Listen carefully. This comes from Romans 3, verses 10 through 20. As it is written, none is righteous except you. No, not one. No one understands except you. No one seeks for God except you. All have turned aside except you. Together they have become worthless except you. No one does good, not even one, except you. Their throat is an open grave except you. They use their tongues to deceive except you. The venom of asps is under their lips, except you. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, except you. Their feet are swift to shed blood, except you. In their paths are ruin and misery, except you. And the way of peace they have not known, except you. There is no fear of God before their eyes, except you. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, except you, so that every mouth may be stopped, except yours, and the whole world may be held accountable to God, except you. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, except you, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, try reading that and saying, Except me, as you read it, and see where that leaves us. See where that leaves you. We enter this world as enemies of God. Though most of us resist that idea, we push back from it, because it doesn't sound good. 
But truth be told, that's exactly where we are as we enter this world. We are fallen. We're rebellious toward God. We're incapable of being righteous as God demands. We're born as citizens, as friends with this corrupt world. And James chapter 4 verse 4 says, To be friends with this world is to be an enemy of God. Those who live according to the flesh, Romans says, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile or at enmity to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For us prideful and arrogant humans, there's nothing to see here. We lean into the rebellion. We lean into our hostility toward God. Our world is demonstrating this in a graphic way before us. Throw caution to the wind and we go full throttle into warring against a holy God. In truth, this is our natural identity apart from Christ. And we can do nothing about it. We cannot change it. You may call yourself something different. You may consume medications to try to change who you are, modify who you are. You may opt for radical surgeries to alter your appearance. You may change your hygienic practices and wardrobe. You may change your associations, but you cannot change the nature of who you are. You're dead in trespasses and sin. Paul exhorts Christ's followers He tells us we have a new identity in Christ. God has achieved His plan, His purpose. The newness that He has promised in Christ, enmity is removed, and we're no longer rebels. For He Himself is our peace, Paul has written to the Ephesians. Once you were far away, he said, but now you've been brought near to God. You are now reconciled to God through the cross. The hostility present in your old identity has been killed. In Him, you're a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. In Christ, you have this new identity. And we're no longer enemies, but He says we are beloved children. Beloved children. From rebels and haters of God to children of God. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. The substitutionary sacrifice that he made has made the bridge that brings us to God, removes our guilt, and gives us his righteousness. John 1, 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 18, I will be a father to you, He says. You shall be sons and daughters to Me. Beloved just means dear. It means precious. Maybe one of the sweetest descriptions that we find in all of Scripture It's quite the contrast to an enemy. When you think about an enemy, you think about someone that you despise, someone you have hatred for, right? But in Christ, we have gone from being an enemy of God 
to being His children. Dear children, beloved children, precious children. I don't know that we're able to comprehend fully and appreciate God's attitude, God's feelings and an assessment of our sin. How it grieves Him. How it is unacceptable to Him. His hatred for sin was best displayed in pouring out His wrath upon His own Son at Calvary. And that substitutionary atonement has moved us from enemies to children. And Paul tells us as His children, He exhorts us to emulate our Savior, our God. Be imitators, he says, of God. What does that mean exactly? Be imitators. Be emulators. Follow the example. You want to see a parent light up? Just tell them how much their child looks like them. Uh, tell them when you see the child do something, something permissible, something adorable, how much they remind you of them, not when they're acting out, right? We've all seen it. We've seen dad with his mannerisms do something and his son right there beside looking up and trying to do the same exact thing. Well, Paul says this is a good thing for those of us who are beloved children of God. Copy what we see in the Father. Well, how do we do that? We can't see the Father. Well, we follow the example set forth by the incarnate God, Christ Himself. Who? Walked in love. Walking in love. Not love like the world describes love. But love as God defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. Love that is patient and kind and not envious or boastful. Not arrogant or rude. Not insistent on its own way. Not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Jesus told His disciples just before His arrest and subsequent crucifixion that He said in John chapter 13, 15, I have given you an example. What was the example? He came in, took off His humble clothing, put on the wardrobe of a slave, and bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples, much to their chagrin, their horror. He humbled himself. And he said, this is the kind of love that you should express for one another. This is the love that you should walk in, this humility, this service. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul states it this way. In writing to the Colossians, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So also, you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here, in our text, Paul calls this example a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is our calling as His beloved children. To follow the example of Christ, who is identified as a fragrant offering and sacrifice 
to God. You know, sacrifice first appeared in Genesis chapter 8 after the flood when Noah and his family exited the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar that he had constructed. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the scripture says. Now what's the importance of this? The importance of this sacrificial aroma. It's not the smell per se. It's not the smell that makes it special. It's what it represents. It represents the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Noah's sacrifice was a foreshadowing of this complete propitiation, satisfaction that God performed through His Son. The debt, the wage for sin is death. The offender must be punished by a holy God. Animal sacrifice pointed forward to the only one that would ever sufficiently atone for our sin, and that is Christ Himself. Now, now, you and I in Christ, we live in the reality of that satisfied judgment. It is the fragrance of Christ that now envelops us before a holy God. Not the stench of our sin and our rebellion that brings the hostility and the anger from God, but it is the sweet aroma of Christ. When God looks at you, He sees Christ. When God smells you, He smells Christ in all His perfections, in all the things where He said, He pleases me. He always does that which pleases me. I'm pleased in Him. In Christ, you have the benefit of that being applied to you. We're covered in His fragrance. And daily we are to die to the old fleshly nature that we might live in the power of Christ's presence through His Spirit in us. We emulate His sacrificial and fragrant offering. Not to try to earn the approval of God, but because we have the fragrance of Christ upon us. When you sacrifice, you give up something of value, exchanging it for something of greater value. Next, Paul raises the issue of our purity through Christ. We have an identity in Christ, but we pursue purity through Christ. How so? He says we must be on guard. We must be vigilant against sensual sin, sexual immorality. This is a major challenge in the world in which we live, is it not? Everywhere you look, unless you walk through life with your eyes closed, you see the temptation and the lures bombarding you constantly, beating upon the door of your soul, wanting admittance. You cannot avoid the imagery in our world. The technology enables it to follow you like a shadow. Television, music, art, movies, advertising. And I'm not advocating that you try to withdraw from society to avoid these things, but I'm just acknowledging that everything, everything has in it the hooks that will lead you to destroy your soul if you're not on guard. Be vigilant. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, he says, must not even be named among you. There should be no hint among us of these things. 
How do we avoid that? Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, he says. Let me read that again. 1 Peter 4.2 Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest, the rest of your time in the flesh, as aliens in this world. Don't live according to this world, but live not for human passions, but for the will of God. Put, de put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul writes to the Colossians, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Avoid these things, Paul exhorts. Don't even allow a hint of them in your life. How do you do that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Fill yourself up with the things of God. Listen, last night at about 6 o'clock, if you had offered me anything to eat, I would have said, please, if I eat anything, I'm going to lose it. Why? Because I've eaten all week long. There's nowhere else for it to go. There's no home for it here. I don't care if it was my favorite dish. Have you ever looked at your favorite dish, the most tasty thing in the world, and you just can't do it? It's because you're too full of other things, right? Well, when we fill our spirit, when we fill our soul with the things of God, God will fill it up and take away the desires, the tastes, the appetites for the things of this world. Our problem is, our problem is, most of us, I'm speaking to myself, most of us really like the taste of the things in this world more, so we always save room. You do that, right? You did that this week, right? You ate turkey, you ate dressing, but you said, i got to save room because I've seen the dessert table. We save room. I'll come back and get that in a minute, but I'm going to keep some space for it. This is the way we deal with the things in the world if we're not careful. We're always keeping room for those. Don't fill up completely on the things of God. And he says we also do this. He gives us a hint here. We do this. Let there be thanksgiving. Let there be gratitude. This is, this is a way, this is a, a, a tool, a weapon against the temptations of this world is gratitude, thanksgiving. Temptation often appeals to us at the gate of discontentment. Right? It's, it's the wall in your life that is the discontent wall. You know, they have the wailing wall in Jerusalem. In your life, you have the discontentment wall where you file all those things that make you discontent, that, that keep you from being satisfied, that keep you from being grateful and thankful. That wall needs to go. That wall must go. And thankfulness and gratitude must fill us up. And when it does, we realize how much God has done for us, how He has blessed us. Then there's no appetite for the things of this world. This world has nothing to offer that's satisfying. This is what Paul is saying. The enemy works vigilantly against it. This was the problem in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? 
Satan approached Eve and he said, Has God said you can't eat from all the trees here? And she said, No, 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 no. We can eat from all the trees. Just the one tree we can't eat from. Oh, well, I was right. You can't eat from all the trees. Why does God not want you to eat from that tree? He's holding something back. He's holding something back. And the discontentment began to move through her mind into her soul. And before long, I have to have fruit from that tree. It looks good to the eye. It's pleasing. It looks appetizing. And God's holding out. The key to thankfulness and gratitude is to realize God's never holding out. Temptation occurs when we start thinking we are missing out on sexual pleasure or glory and honor and fame or riches and fortune and that stuff is following us around. It's crashing into your world through the television, through your social media. I mean, have you seen anybody on social media yet that's having a bad time in their life? Talking about rewriting the history of your life, right? This is my life before you. Look how great it is. And all of a sudden, we start thinking, you know, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that. This is the way the enemy works. Not allowing us to see the things that God has blessed us with, the good that He's provided for us, but always thinking about what's being held out. We feel unfulfilled and dissatisfied. But gratitude has the opposite effect. Discontentment is ingratitude or lack of gratitude. Being thankful nurtures contentment. Being thankful fills us and reduces an appetite for more. In fact, ingratitude keeps steady company with sin and corruption in Scripture. Allow me, if you will, in 2 Timothy, we look at these uh, passages and talk about the end of times, but listen, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents now listen listen ungrateful ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God it's there it's in Romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 1 we know this this terrible picture of the separation from men, their rebellion against God. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so God gave them up in their lusts and impurity. Ingratitude's always a close ally with corruption and sin. Always. Finally, Paul says we need to lean into our destiny with Christ. We have identity in Christ. We pursue purity with Christ. And we have a destiny with Christ. Verses 5 through 7. That for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of those, these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners 
with them. You may be sure of this. Be certain of this. This is a serious warning that he offers here. There is justice, certain justice for idolaters. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They are futile in their minds. This points back to chapter 4, verse 17, doesn't it? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Judgment awaits them. God's wrath is sure to settle these accounts. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Again, Romans 1.21, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave them up to lusts and impurity. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wrath is not a sudden outburst of vengeance and retaliation. It's a swelling, a teeming, leading to a controlled response from God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Revelation chapter 20 portrays for us that great white throne judgment. It says, For those whose names were not written in the book of life, they will stand before the throne and they will be cast into the lake of fire as Satan and his angels, fallen angels, will be following the same path. Justice for rebels, for idolaters, and there's justification and inheritance for the children. They're beloved, they're precious, they're dear to Him. Once you were enemies, despised, destined for the same justice, but in Christ there is favor, there is delight. Being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, says Titus. Romans 8, 14-17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. We love the imagery of our future inheritance, don't we? In Revelation, John the Apostle writes of that dwelling place. God's dwelling place will be of men. There will be no need of light. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears. We love and embrace that. We're excited for that. Now, granted, there's nobody lining up to get on the bus to go today. For some reason, we still lean into life in this world, don't we? We still want to stay here as long as we can. But when we leave this world, we're excited about being in the presence of God and enjoying the glories of that eternal life with Him forever and ever. That's pretty thrilling. A new heaven and a new earth. But what about now? What about today? The world is broken. The world is dark. The world is in despair. What are we to do today? 
Let me share this with you. In Matthew's Gospel, there's a story where Jesus went to the home of a man named Simon. Simon the leper. And a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Very expensive ointment. And she, Mark says, broke it. She broke it. And she poured it on Jesus' head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? This could have been sold. This could have been sold and used for such productive things. Why pour it out on his head? Why do you trouble the woman, Jesus said, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. What had she done? A fragrant offering and sacrifice. I don't know whether she was a rich woman or not. I tend to think she wasn't. Probably just average. Scraped enough money together, had enough money, or she had enough savings to purchase this very expensive ointment. And in her mind, the only thing she knew was to bring it and to offer it to the Lord. A fragrant offering to the Lord. The best she had, the most valuable thing she had, she exchanged because a relationship and a fellowship with Christ was more valuable in her thinking than the possession of the things that she had. This is a sacrificial offering. We're told in Romans 12, Paul writes to us that we're not to follow after this world, but what? That we have a life of a living sacrifice. Now that's, that's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? A paradox. A living sacrifice. How do you be a living sacrifice? Sacrifice implies death. But living sacrifice. That we live our lives in a way that is a fragrant offering and sacrifice unto the Lord. Living in the power of Christ, Holy Spirit. Living with our eyes, our hearts pointed toward that north star, which is the glory of God. Living daily in a way that pleases and honors Him. A fragrant offering that's poured out, spilled out for His honor, for His glory. Paul says we walk. We walk. We do life emulating Christ. Emulating God. Copying our Father. Because He's worthy. Worthy. Worthy of our offering. In Christ, we are certain that we may be indeed pleasing to the Father. How's your life today? How would you rate, rank it? You know, what's the love, the affection, the passion in your life? What's the number one passion? What are you really living for? It's a, it's a pertinent question, isn't it? In this time of holidays and Thanksgiving and giving of gifts and celebrating family and all these things, what really, what really has its grip 
and your heart today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, for your grace that draws us close to you and removes the stench of sin and death that adopts us into your family as one of your dear, beloved, precious children. Meaning that you have all these wonderful desires for us and we desire, Lord, to be... We desire to be honorable to the family name, to, to live in such a way that our lives reflect you, that people look at us and see the markings, see the characteristics, see the mannerisms of Christ himself. Make it so. Make it so. Lord, that your name might continue to go forth in greatness, that people everywhere might be drawn to you, desiring this same relationship for themselves. And we offer ourselves to you, Lord, as a living sacrifice. In Christ's name, amen.